with Andrew Irvin, who is most recently the author of Extraordinary Renditions. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm great, Ed. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm glad we could make this work. I wanted to start off with a rather large question, as I usually do. This book, to my mind, contains numerous literary allusions. I want to mention four that I think I got. The Golden Lotus is very reminiscent, of course, of the Millennium Symphony in Ian McEwan's Amsterdam. There's the moment where Brutus is cutting the corporate logos out of his clothing, and that reminded me very much of the similar moment in William Gibson's pattern recognition. The sad trip down the subway as elevator by Har- Harkali? Uh, Harkai. Harkai. Okay, thank you. That almost seemed a kind of sad reversal of Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, to my mind, the uh, Harkai family synagogue, which Harkai encounters and it's on fire, the fact that it was burning seemed to be possibly a distant allusion to Kafka's synagogue, how his synagogue collapsed in 1968, the Pincus synagogue. <laughs> I wanted to, first of all, ask if any of these allusions are right on the money. <laughs> and second of all, the way literary allusions work for you to kind of kickstart plot, kickstart narrative, and all that. Okay. Um, I don't want to completely break your heart this early in the interview, Ed, oh. but I, I haven't read the first three of those. Oh, wow, really? No. Uh, okay. I, I'm uh, very poorly read with some uh, contemporary literature, I guess. Uh, Kafka, of course, is all over the book. Yes. Uh, I, I'm a huge, huge Kafka fan. Um, uh, I've read uh, as much of his as I could find. Um, there's a lot of James Joyce, of course. Yes. Um, it's hard to write about a uh, Hungarian Jewish man walking around any city without <laughs> getting back to, to Joyce. Uh, other than that, uh, I guess I'll leave the, the rest of the the illusions to you. Yeah. I'll let someone else figure those that's out. That's really, really uncanny. That's always the way it works. Well, <laughs> I mean... Aside from Joyce and Kafka, were there any other authors that were, you know, you, you were sort of drawn to in, in writing this book, or did you largely kind of become concerned more with the experiential journey? What point did you kind of siphon off the influence? Um, I'm sure there, there are a whole lot more influences in, in there than I'm completely aware of. Yeah. Uh, it's three novellas. Yeah. Um, some people want to call it a novel. Some, you know, I, I more think of it as three novellas personally. Uh, and each one has a, a very distinctive uh, aesthetic yes. um, behind it. Uh, the second novella, Brooking the Devil, uh, came a great deal out of reading Madison Smart Bell, one of my, my former teachers. Uh, Robert Stone is, is um, very important to that book. Um, even Beckett, to some extent. Or that novella, I should say. Uh, the first novella, um, what was that one called? <laughs> Uh, uh, they, they, uh, I wrote them in a different order, yeah, of course. Fourteen Bagatelles. Fourteen Bagatelles, yeah. of course. Uh, that's the, the title of a, a Bartok composition. Yes. And there's a, a lot more um, inspiration drawn from, from music, Yes. Uh, classical music in particular, uh, 20th century music, um, than literature for, for that novella. Uh, the last one, uh, The Empty Chairs, there's this um, moment during a concert where the, mus- the violinist has this out-of-body experience. Yes. Uh, that is drawn 100% from um, different studies of shamanism. Uh-huh. Uh, Eliade's big book and um, uh, one called uh, The Shaman in the Woman's Body, a, a more recent book that was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so the, the literary inspirations are, are all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I must ask, I mean, it would seem mm-hmm. 
naturally, since it comes first, that the Barcai novella would be the one that you wrote first. But I'm going to ask if that's indeed the case. Uh, that's the one I wrote last. Aha! I knew it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ed. Oh, no, 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 um, no, no, no. Please feel free to continue to deflate my assumptions. <laughs> um, it, it actually started as um, two two novellas. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had shopped it around and, and wasn't getting much interest in it. And um, one editor recommended that it had to triangulate a little bit. If I, if I had another story in there, um, then it would, it would sort of hold together better as a, as a book. Uh, at first, it, it was more of a, a two-sided thing, kind of like Julius Caesar. Yeah. You know, I sort of wanted how um, that story kind of changes halfway through. Uh, and I was going for something like that, you know, after the emperor bites it, then um, the story kind of moves. Uh, so I, I had a two-part story, and then the idea of the third novella, which for whatever reason, you know, never occurred to me. Yeah. Um, I ended up writing uh, the Harkai novella last, and then I had it ordered. Um, first it was Brutus, then it was Harkai, then it was um, Melanie, and... Um, Coffee House had the idea of switching the first two, and I'm so glad they did because yes. it was a great idea. It's interesting that that was written last because the last two, which mm-hmm. were the first two written, <laughs> are very much coming from a place of fury and vengeance. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, with uh, Markai, you have a situation where he's kind of wandering and observing mm-hmm. and is almost shy for a guy who is a big shot <laughs> <laughs> and also a Holocaust survivor who is possibly developed a thick skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering why you came from a place of fury and vengeance and, and anger, I think, for those those last two first, and then only to settle in on this uh, this more, I suppose, uh, uh, I guess, civilized mm-hmm. clash between culture and politics that is seen through these divigations. Uh, I'm not really sure how to uh, answer for my own personal yeah. anger issues. <laughs> You're very, very, you're scowling at me. I can see the saliva <laughs> dripping off of your lower lip. Um, maybe I, I just mellowed out. I got beaten down so bad by writing the first two. <laughs> or you got it out of your system. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, we were t- Before uh, we started rolling here, we were talking a little bit about Richard Powers. Yeah. And I, I had worked with him as a grad student. Uh, he used to, to very gently tease me about being a method writer, uh, a Stanislavski-esque writer, where I, I inhabit my characters and my personal life to some extent for a little bit. And um, I, I got very tired of writing very angry characters. It, it, it took a, an emotional toll on me. Yeah. And uh, I made a, a conscious decision at one point where my next character has to be a lot nicer. <laughs> so I, I, I'm tired of, of living with myself and my poor wife is putting up with me. Yeah. So um, I guess Harkai might have been um, the beginning of that transition. And uh, a project I've been working on since then, I think, is... Um, trying to intentionally inject a little bit more humor into my writing uh, simply for the the sake of me being able to live with myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of symmetry and anger, it's it's interesting that those last two novellas both have a photographed cock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the uh, the Xeroxed cock of Brutus, and then, of course, the strange situation involving spitting semen into the soldier's mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the, the question I have is, was that soldier Brutus? It could also be Sullivan. Mm-hmm. But the question I have is, uh, why, 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 what's up with the penile imagery here? <laughs> Um, again, you're asking these questions that I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to fully answer at the moment. It's early, Ed. Um, oh, it's never it's, too early to make cock jokes. It's yeah. early on a Monday morning. <laughs> I've just dragged my ass out of bed, and you're asking me cock joke stories? Um, no, I, uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure. Cock, cock? I don't know. <laughs> oh, <God>. Sorry. <laughs> this has to stop. Um, the, uh, I don't want to suggest whether that was Brutus or Sullivan. Or, there, there's a large population of, of American GIs in Budapest at, at any moment. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's one of those guys. I, I'm not. I'm not willing to. Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's okay. I wanted to ask on, uh, you know, Harkai's career is predicated very much on a parental figure mm-hmm. giving him the okay to move forward mm-hmm. with a violin, almost a mentor-like situation mm-hmm. like what you were describing here, it sounds like, with Richard Powers, who was your MFA advisor, mm-hmm. I, I found out. Similarly, Melanie is also given this encouragement late in the book, and it's almost as if this cycle of encouragement is going to defy any political ideology because there's this interesting dialectic going on between communist Hungary and democratic Hungary. Mm-hmm. I mean, on one hand, in the democratic version, you will get hundreds of cakes. <laughs> but uh, there's also one moment where, you know, one of Nanette's old roles in the hay uh, remarks that the Soviet system is responsible for the Hungarian's reputation as gifted mathematicians mm-hmm. and scientists. So I'm wondering about this interesting tension between uh, this kind of political dichotomy versus how human behavior and encouragement will almost defy it, and how this came about in the in the course of writing this theme. There is definitely that that dichotomy between um, the communism of the Soviet era uh, and the the capitalism of of the current American era. Um, maybe the the American presence there is yet another occupation. I mean, who knows. Um, there, there's certainly a lot of imperial overtones to to the, the golden arches going up everywhere. Yeah, uh, and and to me, you know that that's um, and this may be unfair to the people who lived through the Soviet regime, but uh, it, it seems almost as frightening. Um, and, and perhaps that's a, a terrible oversimplification of matters. Who knows? Um, but the the transition from communism to capitalism is just one uh, part of a very very long history uh, of you know, before communism, there there was a, a fascist regime. Um, no, I, I'm sorry, was it? I'm getting my order wrong. Yes, there was a, a fascist regime. Uh, they were under imperial control from the Austria-Hungary Empire. Um, every civilization in Europe has at one point occupied what is present-day Hungary, from, from the Stone Age through um, the Avars and Turks and Scythians, and um, there are Turkish baths. Yeah. Um, there are uh, Soviet high-rises, everything you can possibly imagine, uh, and they exist side by side. Uh, history is not history um, in that part of Europe, because it's, it's so centralized that every single conquering army came through and left their mark. Um, so I don't see this transition from communism to capitalism as um, some great final change over. This is just one more step. Yeah. And this process uh, of continual occupation and reoccupation is going to go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, we're, we're just, we're, we're part of, we're participating in something that, that's uh, a lot bigger than us. Then why is politics so seductive for the various characters, particularly Brutus? Uh, I mean, he's he's a reader not of Chomsky, but of other texts along those lines, uh, Rage Against the Machine-like style <laughs> writers. I, it is interesting that it still remains a seduction, and yet there's also this interesting tension where the narrative... You know, the narrator basically keeps referencing that we're going to have a return to fascism, a return mm-hmm. to fascism. And in fact, with a composer situation, you you have this statement like, he would not live long enough to see Guantanamo, which yeah. is a really uh, 
terrifying way of, of, of going ahead and framing a guy who lived through the Holocaust and got his shit together and actually is, is banging out these symphonies in this opera as well. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm curious as to why, uh, why politics is, is very much the framework, uh, despite the fact the issue we didn't mention in the last big question I, I, I hurled at you was the issue of encouragement and empathy is still going to go on no matter what the political system. So mm-hmm. why then is politics kind of the, the great constantly shifting light bulb that the, all the moths are attracted to here. Um, what else do we have other than, than politics to write about? Ultimately, you know, whether it's, it's on a personal level or a cultural level or a national level, um, politics is, is going to play a part in, in, in every element of our lives, I imagine. Um, you were asking me about anger recently, and I, I think that gets back to, to Brutus, who, who is a, a very angry character. Um, and he, he's the way that I found a voice for my intense anger about um, uh, our political realm in America. I mean, it, it were uh, what's going on is um, disastrous to me. We're still an incredibly racist nation. We're still an incredibly sexist nation, uh, and it, it this this character gave me an opportunity to to voice that in some way. And it, it may be a bit over the top. It may push the radicalism a, a little bit too far in, in some regards. And um, perhaps I, I tried to mediate that with some of the other characters, but uh, I'm not sure. But I should point out that with Brutus, you are very clear to point out that he has a good deal of materialist hypocrisy. Absolutely. Here's a guy who goes ahead and he complains about blowing money, or he he complains about getting ripped off by the hotel, Mm -hmm. and then he's blowing money on fast food (laughs) and uh, Tom Clancy novels. And also... that shopping trip he makes where he's totally fleeced. So so for a guy who is in this really terrible and probably not very well paying mm-hmm. occupation of of setting rat traps mm-hmm. uh and for a guy who is really anti-corporate and 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 inflamed and and into a possible post-black power kind mm-hmm. of situation, mm-hmm. he he is he is decidedly hypocritical that his ultimate engagement with politics is is actually sort of a way of, of him getting lost further instead of finding that identity he wants. Hmm. Is it still hypocritical if we're aware that we're participating? I mean, can we ever get completely outside of the system that we're trying to critique? Hmm. Um, we can we can write the the great um, environmentalist novel of our age, but it's still going to be printed on bleached paper and packed into trucks and carried across. Uh, the, the highway system. Yeah. I mean, there, there's always some participation in, in what we're critiquing, no matter what. Um, my hope is that I'm aware of the extent to which uh, I'm working within a system to critique it to some extent. Not that I had a sp- specific political agenda with this book. I don't. I really don't. Yeah. Um, a- every critic I speak to wants to ascribe one to it, um, and they tend to be different ones depending on who I'm speaking to, which is kind of nice. Um, but there's definitely an awareness both on my part and I believe on Brutus's part of, of um, there's no getting away from what what we're, we're critiquing. We, we are also participating in it. Yeah, yeah. So basically the question I have now is why fiction is the best way to critique this problematic involvement with politics because maybe – well, I may be answering your question a bit. <laughs> yeah, what you do that. Yeah, no, I, no, I mean, um, the thought I had here was that maybe fiction serves as this container for you uh, to examine our participation in the system that we're critiquing because 
it it is in itself a container. And they, I I did actually want to bring up some of the descriptive uh, details about containment. You mm-hmm. refer to like the ceiling of the sky. Uh, there's the Coca Cola sign that is on the top of the mm-hmm. apartment uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the third novella. So this leads me to believe that um, that that this is indeed a, a preoccupation. But I but I want to, maybe we can tie in this mm-hmm. how you arrived at this uh, Walden description with uh, another query about whether fiction is the is the best way to, to create a dialogue about this issue. Um, Why or do you think it is? I, I'm not sure that, that fiction is privileged in any way in speaking to these issues. Um, if I could um, if I could play piano, I would try that. If I could paint pictures, I would do that. Um, uh, I'd be willing to break out an interpretive dance for you if you think I you could do. record that. Um, there, I, I have no... Um, I don't know what, what fiction can do in relation to, to the other arts or other means of expression or, or nonfiction or poetry. They, they all play a part in um, whatever we're trying to say. Uh, fiction is just what works for me personally. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't want to claim that it, it has some kind of privilege. Um, it, it's what I, I do. Well, in terms of the description of characters walled in and, and interiors um wh- why, why do you think you're you're so concerned i mean you do use the ceiling of the sky i mm-hmm. mean that that is a very clear indicator that uh that no matter where one goes one is going to find oneself in some kind of interior even even walking outside uh are you telling me that you don't feel that way <laughs> well depends i mean it's all i mean depends you're asking me to confess <laughs> perspective versus description perhaps and maybe maybe that's the tension we're describing here the um, I guess a, a large part of what this book is about are, are the the restrictions that are placed on us um, by uh, social organizations, political organizations, um, the the barriers we we put on ourselves, uh, the limitations we're we're willing to put on our own imaginations, very often without even knowing it, and and this scares me. This yeah. this frightens me a great deal um, that we don't know how free we are. That, and we, we participate in these polite little conversations in front of microphones and we um, go out in and, and public and follow the rules and, and go where we're supposed to go and buy what we're supposed to buy. And, and um, we're, we're, there's some part of our humanity that, that we've lost touch with. Yeah. We, we've lost something that, that is, um, is vitally important to who we are. We're, we're all so damn polite now. Yes. And... Um, if my characters are constrained in some way, even by their natural environments, um, that may be the reason, because yeah. I, I feel like we, we are constrained. And yet you associate this freedom with violence. The end of the second novella has a very specific line about freedom. And this, to my, I mean, that this was something that he had not perceived for, for so long. And... To my mind, that is that is extremely interesting because on one, on one level, what your freedom might be, or what this or Brutus's freedom might be, and then I, I think in my mind, Franzen's idea of freedom, which to my standpoint is very much endorsing the exact system that mm-hmm. that you're trying to critique. So right. since freedom is is really a, a relative term, mm-hmm. is it even a term to dwell on? Is it too possibly general a term, or does fiction, by way of ambiguities, allow one to? to either the author or the reader to kind of find uh, not necessarily a solution but at least maybe an understanding of, of this dilemma that we're describing 
if how are we going to know when we are free? I mean, that's the question. It is is it just um, opening up a one more barrier and, and seeing a slightly bigger horizon? Uh, there's there's no way for me to to be able to answer that. Um, the moment you're talking about at the end of the second novella with um, Brutus on the bridge over the Danube, uh, I think references um, the Fanon book that he's reading. Yeah. He's carrying around The Wretched of the Earth. Yeah. And uh, this this great book about, um, in many ways, the, the curative power of violence. And, and to try to conflate you know, my personal political agenda, if I have one, with that is is um, a mistake, I think. You know, that that's not me. Um, that that's this one character who who may have a a more enlightened view of the world than I do, or or a more limited one in some way. That I'm not sure. Um, but freedom is not. I mean, what what can you say? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> On the subject of freedom, actually, I, I wanted to kind of get a little bit more further into the politics. You have the Hungarian Independence Holiday as well mm-hmm. associated around skinheads mm-hmm. and violence. Uh, there are several mentions, as I mentioned earlier, of fascism mm-hmm. coming back into the equation. Um, so it seems to me that no matter what political ideology you have, no matter uh, how free we may or may not be, it's still going to be associated with violence. But this, again, leads me to wonder why the side characters are so attracted to it. This leads me to also wonder, is it perhaps a little generalist to assume that we can all fall into the cycle of what we might perceive a, a guy wearing a t-shirt saying what would Jesus do <laughs> have I mean you know isn't this a bit of a reductionist view for fiction or for philosophy or for anything or or are you merely trying to show the limitations in this case of Brutus's perspective um, I'm not sure I understand that question okay the question I suppose is if we have a situation in which politics is associated with violence, no matter what the political mm-hmm. uh, ideology. I think that the question I have really is, um, if you're limiting the characters to violence, mm-hmm. why is there really not much of an alternative, aside from culture, mm-hmm. which, which we see possibly as a sort of, as a way that's, that's apolitical? Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious as to why that is. Um, are you referring specifically to the, the violence of the second novella, to the, the, the whole... second sp- and even the first in the incident with the skinheads as well. The, the experience with the skinheads comes out of, um, very directly, my, my time living in, in Budapest. I got there in November of 94, um, when the the transition was in full swing, there were still hammer and sickles on the coins and things like that, um, and that there were uh, uh, there was a, a great deal of of violence at that time. There were almost no black people around, no people of color at all. Um, yet there were these huge uh, skinhead rallies in the major train stations and all the time, uh, and that scene in particular comes out of. Um, this enormous fear I had at that time. And it wasn't um, my own safety as much as um, what I would do if I saw um, skinheads beating somebody up. And it, it, I, I don't want to say it was a daily occurrence, but everybody I know had, had seen this happening. And, and it, it, was, it was truly um, a horrendous time in, in many regards. And this is just a, a one tiny, small segment of the population. I... I, I not trying to say that you know that the Hungarian people in any way are are, uh, are skinheads. I mean that's absurd. Uh, I, I 
absolutely love um, everything about you know, Budapest, and my wife is half Hungarian. Her father still lives there. Uh, I try to get back whenever I can. It, it's not about the Hungarian people, but this this reaction at that time where, where people were prone to violence um, out of ignorance, out of fear, out of um, insecurity in this, this big dramatic change. Um, when fear and violence is, is just one gut reaction that people have to, to difficult times. Um, and there, you, you'll notice that, that even Harkai forgives them for that, um, that, that he has the opportunity to um, confront one of these, these thugs and, and he, he kind of um, lets it go. Yeah. So for, for all the violence, um, and I don't, you know, apart from one or two little parts, you're kind of making this sound like, you know, a blood sport novel on it. I don't think it is. I hope it's not. Well, there's uh, other things going on, but it, I'm perceiving violence. I mean, it's always associated to politics. Mm-hmm. And if we are trapped into this, in, in this idea of whether, you know, how free are we really, mm-hmm. it is interesting to me that, that really violence is the only real alternative. Um, at least based off of what we're, at least within the context of the book. I'm not sure that um, I, I personally believe that. If that's um, one way to interpret this book, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at that again. I don't see that. I, I see um, the book ends with this woman becoming a composer and dedicating yeah. herself to her art. The, the book is about um, Hart Guy learning how to be a, a composer and write music in, in a concentration camp. Uh, it's to me. I, I see it more about finding these moments of freedom, of artistic uh, creativity, uh, of genius. Um, these these moments of light in in the the darkest, most awful times. But how many of these moments are really attached to politics? I think what the reason why I see what you're saying in terms of these efforts to delve into art mm-hmm. do represent certainly freedom, but. How political are they really? I mean, how political is it to become a composer? How political is it to write a a great masterpiece in a Holocaust camp? That's what I'm suggesting that that they're actually finding freedom almost by completely ignoring the political cycle that they're going to be trapped in, and they almost have no control in. the The other option is is you become like Brutus, and then you're 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 going to get so swarmed with conflicting feelings that you end up resorting to violence and you end up uh, being unable to even react when there's this, you know, creepy expatriate bar <laughs> with a guy who's going to probably cut your hands off mm-hmm. and you, you know, which again is a very interesting choice. Uh, then, you know, you better get rid of the weapons and go about your way and get out of that so that you have no political uh, involvement. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the interesting thing now that I'm on the subject is that you have like, you know, the tips is crossed off of something else, mm-hmm. political. So so politics itself is the trap. The freedom comes from just either ignoring politics or just continuing to operate as if politics don't exist. That's that's hopefully that explains my reading of the book. Here. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. No, no, I, that this is um, this is very helpful. I, I it's it's really difficult for me to, to try to impose any kind of, of personal agenda onto sure. this book. Um, if I had a, a personal political agenda here, uh, it certainly was below the radar of, of my conscious thought. Sure. I didn't go in where I'm going to say um, 
X. I'm going to say Y. I'm going to say Z. I, I tried to be true to these characters as um, unique and complex and flawed individuals. None of them are spokesmen for me entirely, um, but they're all semi-autobiographical too. Um, it, there's there's no one political statement that I'm trying to make. Um, it, it sounds to me that you you're reading this as some grand political gesture, either on my part or on the character's part, and I'm just uh, no. You, I'm I, just kind of curious about that. This is I know, and then and you and you have right to mm-hmm. to. Um, I think the political association I'm reading into it is that politics is a trap, mm-hmm. um, and these characters I think are all victims of that. Mm-hmm. So your option is to either become totally immersed in the mm-hmm. political problem. Uh, and either go insane or become a victim, mm-hmm. or you go off and you just do your thing and and, and, and try to ignore these things and, and concentrate on a sort of almost an anarchistic human uh, human level and do your thing basically. Mm-hmm. So so I, I don't really see this just to be clear as a political agenda, more as a sort of presentation of politics as a trap for these for these various characters. I see. Okay, that, yeah. that's a lot clearer. Yeah. Yes. Um, the politics to me are are not central to the book. Yeah, um, I do see politics as um, a constraint uh, on the characters, but it's but it's one of a thousand constraints. It, it's the same. It's the constraint of of racism. It's the constraint of history itself. It's the constraint of of trying to to create something beautiful. Um, it's that there there all of these three stories are are about. Um, gaining around these constraints, uh, Harkai's carrying around a stone. Yes. You know, um, a- everyone's got got their problems uh, in this book yeah. and out, right? Yeah. Um, but that stone is a, has a very individual association. It's totally off the political scale, and I would argue that the racism and all the other problems are inevitably associated with political machinations. Uh, I think the the bigger question here is is um, your personal fascination with politics. Yeah, I, <laughs> what, so like, sorry to have brought this would, into the... Would equi- you like yeah. to tell us more about that, Ed? <laughs> I think we've already made it clear. You know, I'm going to shift tax here. <laughs> it's a little late for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually... No, but this may actually kind of d- deal with the same issue. I wanted to talk about why you chose this third-person perspective, particularly with a Brutus novella. Mm-hmm. At times, I feel that it is certainly reflective of... Brutus's perspective, and at times I feel that it's actually more your perspective, mm-hmm. the Irvinian kind of perspective. <laughs> so what we have here is kind of a, a, a middle ground that you've decided upon. You you can't entirely commit yourself to Brutus, mm-hmm. yet at the same time there's enough there for you to actually get inside his head. But at the same time, I'm I'm thinking to myself, okay, I get the the. the that the, the actual prose is littered with goddamn and all this just to show how angry he is. But then there are some interesting sort of like almost folksy like, you know, oh, he's out on his butt kind of thing, which I would not associate with that character. Now, I have no problem with this, but I wanted to ask how you arrived at this compromise. Did you make any attempts to write these novellas in first person or why, why, why this choice and, and this specific uh, compromise as I'm suggesting? Um, I, I write just about everything I do uh, in first person, in early drafts, uh-huh. and um, 
try to inhabit my characters by reading what they would read, listening to what they would listen to, uh, things like that, and getting at voice and getting at character from the inside. Um, that is invariably going to um, clearly get filtered through my voice and my consciousness. There's no, um, you know, I, I'm not uh, Chauncey Gardner, yeah. nor nor was I meant to be. It, it's this. Um, nor for that matter, Jerzy Kaczynski <laughs> fabricating the text. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Yeah. You're um, now, now. Now you're the one in trouble. Here. Oh, ah, shit. <laughs> this interview is over. Yeah. Uh, it's. Um, everything starts from first person to me, and uh, I will at one point after I feel like I've got the voice down, uh, I'm going to roll it back over to third, and that helps me to close that focal distance a little bit. Get me um. Set up a, a third person narrator that's not quite the characters, um, but not too far away from them either um and what i tried to do with brutus was was move that shift that focal distance um closer and further away at different times and if my own voice uh intrudes into that um i i don't know how to answer that maybe i'm not that good at writing fiction huh. uh I, I have no idea i mean i don't know i mean i've only just met you but it, it just seemed to me that there and I and again, it wasn't any kind of a problem. I just like the fact that it's almost as if the third person was kind of a filtered device from the pure anger and the savageness of that character. Um, maybe what you're picking up on is the fact that I, Brutus in early drafts was so over the top angry, yeah. like so um, reflective of, in many ways, my personal feelings at the time about you know, the the racism of. of contemporary America that it's possible that in, in subsequent drafts I, I did try to mellow him out at least a tiny bit or or bring him back around towards um, something that a, uh, more people could identify with um, though I, I guess I maybe I was trying to do maintain some of that radicalism but make that radicalism um, more accessible in some way yeah is that possible that's possible that's um, possible like how how do you get people um angry about something you know if, if they don't notice how how racist our culture is like how do you make them aware of it yeah um confronting them with uh, a stereotypical angry black male may not be the the best solution yeah so there has to be um more to this character just as there more is more to every you know black male than the angry man that that so many of our, our so many people just see or perhaps this was also intended to provide the reader with an ability to kind of pick at you know pick pick away at the wall here so that so that you could then start to see little details like one thing i noticed is that jj is a mysterious character a side character who's important to Brutus, uh, we know almost nothing about him aside from the fact that he is the age of a child, and that Brutus is going to write JJ a letter. But that's it, and that's all we all we know. And, and now that you've informed me that it wasn't there was in fact an early draft written in first person, my guess would be that JJ featured more prominently. Uh, actually, he never did. Really? No, nope, huh. neither him nor nor the sister nor the mother. They were all um, they were there, just sort of giving. Brutus a, a connection to home as an American living abroad um, there's always there are always things in America that, that are, are 
dragging us back emotionally, mentally. Um, anyone that's lived out of the country for any length of time has these things. Uh, family, most importantly, I, I would imagine. Uh, without some specific con emotional connection back to the United States like that, I think Brutus would have been a, a, even more adrift and a, a, a much less compelling character. Yeah. Well, the question is, is just from a creative standpoint, how abstract was JJ for you? Did you have that worked out and you only revealed so much in the actual... Uh, I, I know him fairly well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's... he's um, He's, he's on the iceberg, but under the surface of the water. Yeah. This leads me to also ask, since you had mentioned that Richard Powers had called you a method writer, I, I'm curious to know more about this. I mean, how much do you need to know about these characters? And is there a danger in possibly knowing too much? Or is there more freedom, so to speak, in uh, knowing all that? When, when I write um, a very angry character, I'm tough to live with yeah. uh, for, for large periods of time. Uh, project I've been working on after extraordinary renditions, um, I've tried to bring in a lot more humor, um, simply so you know it, it's more fun to write. Uh, so I, I'm easier to, to be around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that seems to, I mean, on the other hand, that could also be limiting in some sense. Uh, there's no question. Yeah. Um, what's the option? You know, I could maybe go away for a couple of months and get that part of the novel out of your system, <laughs> so that the people around you don't say, "Just shut up." I mean, you can't you can't turn it off. Or uh, the please stand by. The journalist has run out of batteries. Please stand by. All will be okay in a moment. Uh, and that's the big secret to extraordinary renditions. Yes. <laughs> So you were you just told me that we we, cut, we lost battery power, but I uh, we were talking about method writing, mm -hmm. and uh, I was asking what you can do to. We were trying to determine a solution here as to how you can be okay around your loved ones <laughs> when you're working on fiction, um, and why you think that is. And you were telling me you were talking about uh, your your next novel is actually about a guy who lives off the grid so maybe we can kind of get back on this thread apologies no 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 problem at all it's um i guess because i, I inhabit my characters so much that it, it's it's difficult to get in and out of character for me yeah. um and it's um it it happens i mean it's like oh it, it basically after i've been writing you know there'll be an hour where i kind of need to go for a walk or, or clear my head in some way um and it's kind of like come back to reality. You know? Yeah. But th that, that's that's all we're talking about. It's not like months at a time. I, I um, you know, I'm not playing Jim Morrison and, <laughs> and, you know, and have to stay in character, you know, 24 seven. It, it's. I'm like, writing my novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's not like no, that. No, but I, I do when when I. It's so difficult to, to concentrate in this day and age. It's it's really like my my attention span's getting so damn short, and. Um, I, I'm constantly checking my email. Fortunately, I have a very dumb phone. I, I don't have a smartphone yet, and um, so I, I'm not hooked on that yet. Um, and when I do finally get these great moments of concentration, whether it's it's reading something wonderful or it, it's um, writing um, fiction or even a, a book review or an essay, it, it's... Um, it's almost disappointing to come out of that focus back to this reality of you know Facebook and Twitter and email and yeah. and all of these things and and that's more what I'm getting at 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 um, 
Facebook and Twitter are a reality? <laughs> uh, it, that If they're not, they're what's taking place for reality right now. It's yeah. another one of these constraints that we put on ourselves without even realizing it. Yeah, well, for going back to the issue of freedom. But this leads me to wonder if... Do you have any background in theater if you're a method writer? No? Not huh. Sorry. Interesting. No music or anything like no, that? No, I'm rotten at playing instruments. Oh, wow. Absolutely brutal. Wow. So what do you think you attribute this intense emotional uh, reaction? I mean, not not super intense, not like, you know, uh, screaming at the top of one's lungs, as I, as I suggested earlier. Why do you think it's it's like that for you? Um, is it an all-or-nothing affair when you put your energies to the page? Yeah, I, I suppose it is. Um, every, every one of us has, has methods of... Um, getting away from ourselves, from our egos. Um, some people are going to meditate. Some people are going to take drugs. Some people are going to, um, you know, do whatever it takes to kind of distract ourselves from from our own internal processes. Um, fiction is is a way of of doing that for me. Writing intensely helps me do that. Um, yet maintain you know some degree of of myself through the guise of these fictional characters. But is it always so intense? Um, when it's going well, it is, sure. When it's going well. Yeah. Is it tense in revision? Uh, no. Uh, I write uh, first drafts very, very quickly. Um, and then I'll revise for, for um, four or five, six times longer than the actual writing process. It's mostly revision for me. And that tends to be a lot easier. Well, on that note of revision, we'll try to revise this interview. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much. It's a pleasure sharing. Uh, thanks so much. Great. I appreciate it. Cool.